0: This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and Ingress. Of all the new initiatives introduced in recent years by Racing New South Wales, none have been more widely acclaimed than the weekly Tab Highway races. Introduced four years ago, the Tab Highways have proven to be a tremendous stimulus for country racing stables as new owners constantly look for the right horses to bring to town. At first, trainers like Matt Dunn, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the highways, but nowadays the results prove that many and varied stables have learned to identify the kind of horse they need to travel down the highway. $75,000 $75,000 in prize money and an assortment of race distances are making these races highly competitive and stimulating healthy betting trends. The TAB highways are a big part of the new world of Sydney racing. My special guest is Mark De Montfort, who's been training horses for a little over 12 years now, following a stellar riding career which brought him 1200 winners and 13 Group 1s. The first of those 1,200 winners was a speedy little thing called Tudor Vane, trained by your boss, Ray Guy, and I think it was at Kembla Grange.
1: It was at Kembla Grange. Um, Tudor Vane, she was an easy horse to remember because she was the fastest horse uh, we had at uh, our Rose Hill stables at Ray Guy's, and mm. she was that fast, no one could ride to work. Unless she got let off the pony and she used to get led around to the 600 metre mark on the grass and um, we used to have a slip lead. The guy on the pony would have a slip lead through the bit and yeah. just let her rip for 600. And she'd go flat out for 600, but she, she was fast. But um, she only went real good for the apprentices. And ironically, you know, I had my first win on her and I think she gave six apprentices their first winners.
0: Goodness me. She made Be- about 17 races. So as quick as she was, and obviously a little bit silly, but at least she'd go straight. You wouldn't get into too much trouble.
1: No, on race day, she went round to the to the barriers, most times off the pony being led because she was used to it. So mm. the apprentice just had to trot next to the, put mm. right on to the lane and trot round to the barriers next to the pony and she would stand the gates and she was faultless out the gates and she would just jump and leap every time. Mm. And all you had to do was steer her, basically. And um, that's why all these apprentices could win on her. And uh, I, I think I won about five races on it, maybe six. Mm. At least she, she won at least seventeen races.
0: Mm. Your first city winner, also trained by your boss, was Come True at Canterbury, and that was a big occasion.
1: Yeah, it was a big day. I'd um, originally come from Frank Panfolds where I had seven rides, I think, in seven months, and had never passed a horse in a race and uh, <laughs> once I got to my uh, Guys, my first ride there, I think I ran third at 250 to 1 on an mm. old horse called Tensing. I was quite excited that I could run a place in a race. Uh, I had a couple of winners in the Provincials, and then um, Ray put me on this horse come true, which I'd won at Gosford, I think, previously. Mm. And uh, at the time, I thought I knew what I was doing, but they were just bomb-proof
2: rides, basically. They put themselves at the box seat and just ran past where they needed to
1: run past down the straight. But, um I
0: beat
1: mean, old Norm Munsey, Glenn Munsey's
0: dad at the time. Mm. Was, uh, the jockey ran second mm. at Canterbury and, uh, yeah, it was a big boost, my first city winner. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier that you would come into the broadcast box when you had broken limbs and sit with me all day. You'd pick out a top jockey in every race and you'd watch every move they made. I remember you, uh, you had a big rap on Jay Duggan. You had a big rap on P. Cook, R. Quinton and L. Dittman. Not a bad set.
1: Yeah, now, though, I remember at first I loved watching Johnny and uh, Johnny Duggan and Peter Cook. I just was in awe of the way they looked in the saddle on a horse and they just looked calm all the time the way they rode. They were vigorous when they needed to be but, you know, they were calm riders and I loved watching them in races. And then Ronnie, obviously, I loved watching Ronnie ride in races and... And then once I got my ticket, and I got to be able to ride against these guys. So I was in awe of riding with them, which you realise now that even these kids today must be in awe of some of the riders riding in the room now. And yeah. I don't think I ever could speak to them for the first year I rode. And we had old Jack Thompson, mm-hmm. legendary rider who was renowned for helping out the kids. Um, he was probably one of the first senior riders that would try and help me steer me clear Mm. of trouble through a race and advising on what you're doing wrong and what you should be doing.
0: But, um, he was still riding in races, Mark, in 1983, Jack Thompson. He was 62 years old when he rode his last winner. It was a, a big chestnut horse at Wyong for Albert Stapleford, whose name was mentioned earlier, and um, was the horse was called It's Lunchtime. So no wonder Jack was... Happy to convey uh, his knowledge and, and good advice to apprentice riders because the game had been so good to him.
1: Yeah, he was, he was great for that. Um, so I was, it took me at least a year before I could properly speak to the other riders, the senior riders, because I was in awe of them mm. and um, I really didn't know what I was doing my first year riding in races even though I was riding some winners. Mm. But Jack Thompson, was, he, he stands out in my mind as one of the most helpful riders. Mm. Um, when I was a kid, he'd come to you and tell you um, you didn't have to go and ask him.
2: So mm. he's, you
1: know, it was probably for his own benefit as well. Maybe I put him in some unsafe spots at times. I don't know, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> might have been self-preservation for him and the other jockeys.
0: But, yeah, um, yeah.
1: I remember well that he always came to me and, and would offer advice. Mm.
0: Now, Mark, clear this one up for me. This has been puzzling me for years. Your first Group One winner was Red Nose in the 1979 Canterbury Guinness. How did Mark de Montfort get to ride a Group 1 winner for Theo Green? Where were all of his star jockeys?
1: Well, it was quite remarkable, John. Um, My boss had a horse, a guy, we had a horse in the race, Brandy Slipper, Mm -hmm. who I'd I'd ridden previously and um, won on him. And I was hopeful I was riding Beanie Sipper in the Canterbury Guineas, mm. my first Group One ride. Um,
0: it turns out
1: the syndication that owned the horse um, Hyperion had a senior rider on him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a apprentice at the time, and they uh, had Ray Selkirk, who used to ride a lot of their horses, the Hyperion thoroughbreds. Mm-hmm. So obviously I wasn't in the race. And then uh, a few days later, my boss comes out, Ray Guy, and tells me the um, Stabling area, oh, you've got to ride that guineas on um, Saturday, you know, ride a horse for Theo Green, who I'd never ridden for. Obviously, I was a Rose Hill apprentice, and uh, and yeah. very rare did Ramwick trainers put on Rose Hill kids or very rare did Rose Hill trainers put on Ramwick kids. Mm. And At the time, Theo had Malcolm Johnston riding for himself, and obviously Ronnie Quinton always rode for him. Yeah. And um, Malcolm was a senior rider at the time, And Darren Beeman was kicking off, but hadn't quite got going by that time. Mm. And um, Johnny Duggan did a lot of riding for third green, but I don't know how I got on the horse, to tell you the truth. No,
0: it's a a mystery. It was a mystery then, uh, and it still is.
1: He just found me and put me on the horse, and unbelievably, um, my first rider group one race, I finished up winning on him and uh, ironically beat my boss's horse (laughs) for the second. Yeah, so, you did too. yeah, I was quite chuffed about that. The oh. fact that I I wasn't able to ride my boss's horse, but I was able to beat it.
0: Yeah. Well, people that were around then, Mark, uh, were, were shaking their heads, and you still haven't been able to explain it very clearly.
2: No, not <laughs> really.
1: I'll never know to this day how um, Theo found me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, he's, we had another apprentice at the time who who, who died in a race for David Green. Mm. Uh, he wasn't quite, you know, hadn't ridden as many winners as myself, so I, I figured that's why he wasn't on Red Nose. And I think Ronnie Quinton, I'll, he obviously had a ride in the race, and maybe Johnny Duggan did too, and yeah. I'll, I'll never never know. I'll never get to find out how he, he found me, but he, he used me quite a few times third green after that, mm. and um, I, I was quite chuffed at the fact that, you know, a renowned trainer from Ranwick would bother using Myself from um, Rose Hill, yeah. especially being an apprentice who was never apprenticed apprentice to him. So mm-hmm. um, no, I was indebted to Theo for
0: my first Group 1 winner, that's for sure. Your first biggie, for want of a better word, your first major Randwick Group 1 winner was Row of Waves for Les Bridge in the 1985 Doncaster. I think this may have been your very first ride for Les Bridge. Uh, pretty
1: much was. Um, Peter Carter, he had been riding a horse, um, I think, had two of his three previous starts and, and uh, the horse was a little bit unlucky his previous run, maybe at Canberra he might have raced um, before the Doncaster and um, anyway, the horse was in the Doncaster and I could get down to about 51 kilos at that time, you know, wasting hard and the horse, I think from memory didn't quite get Peter cut his riding weight.
2: Yeah. So that's
1: how I was able to get on Roll of Waves. And um at the time I was riding a lot of winners for T J Smith and various other Ramwick trainers, so um I had a good profile at that stage and I'd ridden, you know, quite a few you know, group twos and three winners and was riding mm. in the group one races. And um anyway, Les Bridge found me and uh, I won on his horse at mm. sixty six to one. Yeah. And uh, we formed a quite a good partnership for the next year or two, Les and I.
0: Oh, you did? Yeah. yeah. You had great me. admiration for his talents as a trainer and a horseman, didn't you?
1: Yeah, he was, he was great, Les. He was the most patient guy mm. uh, to ride for. A little bit unique compared to where I'd come from at Rosehill. I found the trainers at Rosehill at the time were more um, on edge, got our horses up and going quicker and Less, in, less patient. Mm. Uh, you know, I found a, a guy like Les Bridge, once I met him, he, he was so calm and relaxed about everything that we did and he was easy to work for and um, I had some great success with Les. Um, just got beaten yeah. in a slipper on one of these horses.
0: Yes, you um, did. Uh, just blooming.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you yeah, ran just, second to bounding away.
1: Yeah, and um, mm. should have won the race, probably. Um, it's um, I think I drew barrier three on the day with Mm. about a 25-to-1 chance. I'd previously won the Black Opal on Just Blooming. Mm. And um, she only went into the slipper at a third start in the race. Uh, I'd won won on her at 50-to-1 at Warwick Farmer first start. Then the second start, she won the Black Opal. Mm. So it was quite unique to go into the Golden Slipper at your third start. But she drew barrier three, and I thought she was a genuine chance. And I'll never forget, Peter, Peter Cook had drawn one on a uh, Neville Big trained horse, and uh, Ronnie and uh, Lenny, Lenny Dippman, Mick Dippman, was on um, Bounding Away. Yeah. Doing a bit awkward, 9 or 10 or 11. Mm. And um, my main goal was to keep out of trouble going to the first turn, and uh, Peter jumped in front. Peter Cook jumped in front on his filly and looked like he was going to lead the first 50 metres, and I crossed straight behind Peter's back, thinking I'm going to be third fence, fourth fence here, and, mm. I'll never forget Mick Dipman. Um, they never really got on, Mick Dipman and Peter Cook. No. Um, anyway, Mick Mick was coming across pretty quick from the um, from the ordinary barrier, and I'll never forget Peter screamed out to him, "Don't do it, don't do it!" And I was behind Peter, thinking, "No point in saying, don't do it. You better kick out because he's going to do it." Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mick smashed Peter into the fence, and yeah. I was I got the backwash, and I went back about five lengths at the time, and yeah. Um, anyway, Mick finished up with the run of the race, and I've gone home really well and just got beaten in the neck by, um, mm. by Mick's mount. Um,
2: Bounding and, away. And should yep. have
1: won, and that was the infamous day where they had a bit of a scuffle after the race. Mm. Peter Cook and Nick Deppman in the room. Yeah. And uh, I remember sitting there saying, Well, it's your fault, Pete. You should have kicked up. He was always going to deck us. But uh, anyway, mm. that was the one that got away.
0: Yeah, that's history. Now, Tommy Smith put you on an Epsom winner, Chanticleer, in 1986, but then the following autumn you were given the ride on a smallish and rather plain little horse called Meyer Card. and you got the call to ride him in the Rawson Stakes, which is now the Randvet, because Shane Dye had been mucking him around.
1: Yeah, at the time um, I'd ridden a few winners for Doc Chapman and uh... – Months earlier, um, we were at the trials at Roseville and the first trial was about to start and um, Doc was running around saying, all oh, right, Jock, have you got to ride the first heat? My Jock hasn't turned up in time. Can you ride this horse? So mm. I just jumped on this horse. Happened to be my card. Mm. Three-year-old and um, the horse trolled. Super. Mm. And um, I remember after the trial, I remember saying to Doc Chapman, I said, well, I'll ride this anywhere, anytime. This is like a champion. And anyway, um, that was then. And the horse went to Melbourne and raced a few times and unbelievably unbelie- came back to Sydney. I was still riding for Chapman. However, uh, Shane Dye was booked to ride this Meyer card in the Rambeck. And two days before the race, Chapman rang me and said, oh, look, that bloke got a chance to ride, uh, meaning Shane Dye, he's got a chance to ride that champion horse Bone Crusher Yeah. previously won the Cox Plate in an epic duel with our Waverly Star." And uh, Doc said, I'm not going to stand in his way if he wants to ride the champion. You uh, know, He said, so you, you want to ride this bloke? You said you'd ride him time, anywhere. And I had to waste quite a bit to ride. He had 52.5, I think, from memory, mm-hmm. in the Rambit, being a three-year-old, in the weight for age race. And anyway, I jumped on the horse, and he was 25 to 1 chance. And um, all, the, all, the, all the stories were all about the Bone Crusher and our uh, Waverly star rematch. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they like, looked like doing battle at the top of the straight, again, as their uh, Cox Plate race suggested, yeah. um, but I was on my card and I just breezed past and then a hundred mile an hour.
0: And you yeah. did the same in the Tankard Stakes a fortnight later. That's right. And yeah. then the stage was set for the AJC Derby of 1987. Now, my card, you retained the ride. That's Doc right. Chapman had another one in the race called Imprimata with Shane Dye on board. Shane elected to lead. You were back a fair way in the first half of the race, but from the 800 metres you started to get inside run after inside run. Coming to the turn, Shane Dye started to look behind for some reason, not once, six times, before leaving the fence, giving you and Maya card a perfect rails run.
1: That's right. Yeah, it was. Um, I used about a nice money chance my car before the race, and um, because Shane died, couldn't get back on my card after I'd won twice uh, on him from two rides and both Group Ones. Um, one of the the owners of the horse, um, Stan Dumbrell. The other uh, second owner was um, John De Noon and mm. Jeff Chapman, the trainer, was the other part owner. Well, um, Stan Dumbrell was all for. Leaving me on the horse in the Derby, which was fine. Which was great for me, and um, I remember before the race thinking, "Well, Imprimata, the stable mate, um, it leads, it led, it leads all the time. It led all the way and yeah. won a Champion Stakes, and led every time. And it, it actually, I would gallop with it every now and then on my card, and and Shane would ride Imprimata and it would leave me by four in the track gallop and beat me by ten. Yeah. Um, it was just one of those horses. But so I just figured he'll lead in the race, so don't worry about him. Mm. And I remember at the time, before the race, the thoughts you go through before you're riding in, a, in in any sort of race, especially a big race, I thought, just don't get stuck on the fence. I just don't want to be stuck on the fence on this horse. He has a tendency to hang in a bit, mm. um, which is two previous runs when he came down the outside, he ducked across the face of the field. Yes. So, um, I didn't really want to get stuck on the fence and he didn't get out real well that day in the derby. And um, anyway, he was back to third last on the fence. And mm. I thought, this is exactly where I didn't want to be. And they were rolling along in front, so I thought, well, the pace is suiting me quite nice. We get past the mile and I'm third last on the fence thinking, oh, I'm a minute back, but I won't worry about it till a half mile. And just before the half mile, I got up inside. I think it might have been one of Peter Cook's horses or Johnny Marshall. They'd mm. come off the fence and I went to, you know, about eight on the fence. And another bloke pulled off the fence by the time I got to seven hundred, then I was like fifth on the fence. And then get into the turn, I remember thinking, I got you off the fence here, but I had a couple of horses on my tide on my outside. I remember thinking, I can't get this bugger off the fence. (laughs) 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 He's staying on the fence, my horse. I looked ahead, Tim was leading, which I figured that. And this is about the six hundred. And I remember thinking, Oh, I've got another one to get up inside. Uh, I'll get outside in Pramata by the time I get to the Well, I got up inside the next horse to put my third fence at the 500. And as I got the third fence, probably two, three lengths off in Pramata, the leader, mm. Shane was looking over his right shoulder on the inside back to me. Mm. Well, he couldn't tell it was me. From his angle, he could only see a horse, his head maybe. And when he looked back, I remember thinking, what are you looking at? And I only thought that. And at the time, I'm, I'm on my card thinking, I oh, can't get him off the fence, this bugger. And Shane's horse was about half a horse off the fence. I remember thinking, I'm just going there no matter what. Because I couldn't get off the fence. I couldn't get out anyway. I virtually was committed to just railing. And anyway, as I got close to him, saying, still looked back. I, I think at the time, he, he had a bit of a panic attack and thought, oh, I better not knock him down. So he went out further. He yeah. went out, which looked like the heavens opened up. but Mm. I was always going to get through there, but it made it look a bit ridiculous. Anyway, my yeah. car went up along the fence, and careers away and wins by seven.
0: Yeah. And, um, and poor old Shane, while yeah, you and, were basking in the glory of a Derby win, he copped six months for his trouble.
1: Yeah, well, it, I've got to say at the time, he took all the gloves off my right because I thought I'd ridden such a good race throughout the race. Mm. And um, we get in the jockey's room. As I sit down, I used to sit next to Peter Cuddy in the jockey's room at, um, at uh, Randwick, and mm. it was well away from where Sh- Shane would sit. Anyway, as, as I sat down after the race, Peter congratulated me. Shane came in after weighing out, and, uh, weighing back in after the race, and said to me, oh, tell him you called, tell him you called. Well, I didn't have much time for Shane at, the, at that period, and um, I just told him to pee off. <laughs> and um, and uh, I remember saying to Cuddy at the time, uh, I don't know what he's talking about. I said, I didn't call out to him. I said, he's an idiot. Mm. And anyway, we'd go in the steward's room, there's a big inquiry as to why Shane I left the fence for me. Mm. And uh, the stewards questioned me and said, you know, Shane has mentioned that he heard a call from you and he left the fence. And I was a little bit taken back by that. And in the steward's room, I said, well, actually, I didn't say a word and... Pretty much, it was a very quiet sort of race. Some races, you had a lot of jockey yelling out. This particular race, there was hardly a murmur from anyone. And I remember saying to the steward at the time, in fact, I don't think anyone said anything the whole race. I didn't hear anyone call anything out, let alone me call no. out. I said, mm-hmm. he's the last black I would call out to help me. I said, he'd hindered me before he'd helped me. So with that, um, they brought in about four or five other jockeys around my position at that time, Questioned them, Greg Hall, I think, Mitt Dickman, and um, a few other riders, and said, "Was there any calling out happening in the race?" And mm. they actually all said the same as what I said: there was no calls by anyone, nothing. Mm. So they got Shane back in again and said, "Look, we've got all the jockeys' reports, and no one's called out anything. No one heard anything." Mm. So he recanted what he'd said. He said, "I will. I just saw him, and I went off the fence mm. with that. Um, obviously, I had no." knowledge to what he was doing and um, saying got given six months for virtually aiding a stable mate in a race which he didn't have to no, no. Um, got his six months and uh, I went on my mer- merry way
0: The classic sale is now completed with an increase of almost 20% in average and a very healthy clearance rate of 85%. The attention of yearling buyers now focuses on Melbourne for the English Premier yearling sale. In total, 784 lots have been catalogued, which will run over a revamped three-day format at the outstanding new Oakland's Junction precinct from March 1st to March 3rd. As part of an extraordinary run of success which has seen 41 Group 1 winning graduates of English Auctions since 2018, the reputation of the Premier Sale continues to soar. It has produced 13 individual Group 1 winners since 2018 a tally bettered only by the Easter yearling sale among the major Australian sales. A strong 2020 catalogue contains progeny of 120 sires, including 35 first season sires. There is also a strong international flavour to the catalogue, with a cult by world champion Galileo, the only yearling progeny of this iconic stallion to be catalogued for public auction in the Southern Hemisphere this year. Champion European stallion Frankel will have three yearlings in the sale. Action starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday, March the 1st. Catalogues are available at ingless.com.au. Well, it's now history, Mark, that Meyer card backed up in the Sydney Cup. Kerry Packer had a massive bet on him, which you were probably not aware of at the time you left the enclosure, and then had the indignity of watching his own horse, Major Drive, knock you off.
1: Yeah, it was quite remarkable. Um, after we won the derby, um, Doc Chapman said, oh, we'll give him a good break now, and he deserves it, which he'd won three group ones in a row in the matter of a month. Mm-hmm. And um, unbelievably, I got to the track on a Monday, and um, Chapman said, look, I'm going to run that horse in the Sydney Cup next week. I went, really? Mm-hmm. And um, I was a bit surprised. I thought he was out in the paddock that day. Anyway, I rode the horse track on the Monday, and the horse was quite keen on the track. He was never keen on the track. He was quite over the top and ultra keen. And mentioned the chapman, I said, he's a bit keen. I said, he's a bit, I said, he's a bit dirty on the wall. Yeah. Anyway, I rode him Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The horse gave me the same response. He wasn't happy. And I could feel he, he drained off just from his reactions. He went from a quiet, relaxed, chilled-out horse to a very revvy horse the whole mm. week, yep. up to the Sydney Cup, I remember saying, um, you know, I don't know about this. I said, oh, he just doesn't feel the same horse as no. what he's felt the last three runs. Anyway, um, unbelievably, Greg Hall, his wife had rung and said, oh, Greg's going
2: to come to Sydney. Can he stay with you? Because I don't want him getting out into trouble, mm. as he could do, Greg, when he <laughs>
1: stayed in Sydney. So Greg stayed with us on the Friday night prior to the Sydney Cup. on the Saturday morning, I heard Greg answer his phone and then I could work out it was quite apparent it was Kerry Packer on the the line because uh, Greg's only sitting in my kitchen. I heard Greg say, you know, you used to call him boss. Mm. Yeah, boss. Yeah, no, 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 no. That three-year-old's a certainty. We'll do our best, but he's a certainty. You won't beat it. Mm. You know, Greg hung up the phone. I said, you don't think I'm a certainty? I I remember it well saying to Greg, you don't think I'm a certainty? I said, I think mine's trained off. I said, I don't even know if it'll run the two miles. He mm-hmm. said, and Greg said in his guest professor way, you're a friggin' certainty, don't worry about it. I said, I'm telling you, Greg, I said, this <laughs> thing's trained off. <laughs> anyway, so still not knowing that Park had had a bet on the horse, I just, from an owner's point of view, Greg was relating to the owner from my point of view in the kitchen that, uh, you know, we're doing our best, but we probably won't beat the favourite. So we get to the barriers and I've drawn four, Greg's drawn three. And uh, everyone was known, uh, No knew at the time, Pack was betting up big over that carnival and, mm. you know, I didn't know Packer. So I didn't know what he was up to. We're in the barriers and the um, phone call rings to the starters.
2: Yeah, exactly. Area.
1: It was Bill Cooper at the time, the starter, and every all jockeys knew that when the phone rang, just when we're about to jump, that means a jockey's gonna get a bit of a heads up that you know, mm. there's something uh amiss in the betting. Mm. So we're gonna keep an eye on what you guys are doing. Mm. Well anyway, the phone call got answered by Bill Cooper and Bill Cooper walked behind the
2: barriers as a starter would do, walk behind the barriers and just firstly tap the jockey on the bum and say, mm. Look, anyway, he
1: he got between Bill Cooper got between barriers three and four behind the gates and he said, Greg, Greg said, I know, mate, I know what you're on about. He said, we're blown in the bet. He said, the big fellow's on the favourite. He said, don't worry about me. He said, I won't get in the trouble. He said, he's a certainty anyway. And Bill Cooper, in his reserve way, would say, Greg, this is serious. Just be careful. Your horse is blown, blown. alarmingly in the bet.
0: Yeah, it had gone for a bath, mate. Alarmingly. Yeah.
1: So they're going to watch every move you make. And Greg, still jokingly, Saying, I don't worry about it, belly," He said, uh, he's a certainty anyway, this bloke pointing to me. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm wincing at the time, thinking, oh, Greg, what are you doing to us here? Anyway, we jump out of the barriers. Greg and I are back, probably running 12th and 13th, mm. going past the winning post. And I was getting a little bit of pressure from my outside. Of course, was on my outside. I had Greg on my inside, on the winning post the first time. I remember Greg called out to me. He didn't want me to deck him through the fence. And I remember it's funny what you go through through a race. I'm still thinking at the winning post, I'm thinking, geez, if I knock Greg down Mm. and that looks suspicious that Greg's horse has blown the betting, mine's firmed and I win, they'll Mm. think I've done this intentionally. So I didn't knock him down, I kept I looked after him. So Greg Greg and I just went around next to each other virtually the whole race of the Sydney Cup. We straightened up. I've got the advantage because um, I'm on the outside. I make my run down the outside. Well, obviously, Greg comes out and follows me down the straight. Mm. Anyway, Greg beats me on the line. My horse was was four lengths below his best. Mm. I, I should have won the Sydney Cup by four lengths, given my form and my horse's ability, but the fact I thought he'd trained off going into the Cup, uh, he was a bit below his best. Mm. Anyway, Greg beats me by about a neck, I think. And um, so... Greg's the winner of the Sydney Cup, and um, we had a tail between our legs, and poor Meyer car was exhausted after the race. Yep.
0: Um,
1: and because Greg was still staying at my place, it rained for the following day. We played golf at um, The Australian through, obviously, his boss. Um, so I was looking forward to playing The Australian the next morning, and anyway, it rained heavily overnight, and Greg and I turned up at the golf course at The Australian just to have the game between myself and him and Water everywhere, and the, the pro in the shop said, oh, I'm sorry, mate, there's no golf carts. You have to walk it. So Greg and I were real happy about that. We'll be still on the first two, ready to hit our first shots. And this this cart driving up the middle of the first towards us, and there's water spraying everywhere. I remember saying to Greg, well, how come this bloke can drive a cart when we can't get a cart anyway? We have to wait for this cart and the man driving it to drive up to our tee box to get out of our way anyway. He drives up on our tee box. And I'm like in shock watching this guy drive a golf cart on the tee box at the Australian. Anyway, the cart pulls up and it's back Packer, mm. and he steps out, <laughs> and, and uh, I'd never met him before. And he introduced himself to me and and gave Greg a pat on the back. He said, uh, "Bad luck, buddy." He said, um, "I'd rather a trophy in the cabin any day uh, than back in a winner." And <laughs> yeah. um,
0: I don't think so. <laughs> so <laughs>
1: So it was quite funny that, um, yeah, yeah, uh, he'd had his winner, even though he reportedly blown millions on my card in the race. um, But he just casually said, I'd rather have a trophy in the cabinet any day, son. He said, I'll play a few holes with you. So he played about five or six holes with us, and uh, Mm. he was allowed on the card, of course. And Greg and I walked it, Mm. and uh, that was it. But uh, it was quite astonishing the circumstances
0: around the big bet. And the circumstances around the 1987 Sydney Cup. Now, Mark, um, uh, I'm just looking at the time piece and our time is rapidly expiring, but there there are a couple of horses yet uh, that I want to get your uh, reflections on. So we'll put on a bit of speed here, mate. What about old quick flick, that big, strong, free-striding grey trained by Tim Donnelly, he won 16 races, 13 placings, 1.3 million. Are you aware you rode him 31 times and you won nine races on him, including a Group 1, the rider? You loved him.
1: Yeah, well, he was the uh, most wins I ever, ever had on one particular horse. And uh, obviously, association with Tim was fantastic. And to win that Group 1, um, yeah, that was great. He um, wasn't that good a horse. He wasn't a Group 1 type of horse. Uh, But the way he
0: raced and how hard he tried, uh, he deserved to clip one and um, Mm. that was quite a that my nemesis ran second that day too. That's right, yeah. Now to the 1999 Golden Slipper. You'd won four straight on Catbird for Frank Cleary, including the Black Opal, and in any other year, you would have been pretty confident coming into the Slipper. But there was a wrap on Redoute's choice a mile long. He'd only had two starts. He'd won them both, the verve Clico, a listed race, and the Blue Diamond. Now, Mark, this is an incredible story. Um, Shane dies on Redoute's Choice from Barrier 16. You're on Catbird, drawn just inside of him. You're, you get into your car at home and you're reversing out of the garage. The car radio came to life and you heard about the late scratching of Redoute's Choice.
1: Yeah, it was unforgettable. Um, we drew three and four, Redoubt's Choice and, um, and uh, Catbird. And my my game plan was if I get to follow uh, Redoubt's Choice through the race, he had more speed than me out the gates. Mm-hmm. But if I get to follow him, he has a trouble free run. I can't beat him. And if I'm probably following him and we run into trouble, Uh, If he finds trouble, I'm behind him. I'm going to find trouble. I didn't really know how I was going to handle the race. I just thought I couldn't beat without choice, who both Jimmy Cassidy and Shane Dye had stated after they'd ridden the horse earlier. Mm. Uh, He's a champion. Mm. And um, I just thought, well, probably resign to the fact. Best case scenario, I'll run second. I'll beat everyone else. I just don't know how I'm going to beat this horse. Mm. Yes, and I was reversing out the drive over at 10.30 that morning, races, going to the races. And as I reversed out, they came over the air, uh, late scratching Rose Hill. And I remember stopping the car as I reversed out, thinking, Redout's twist scratch. Mm. That means I win. And <laughs> I honestly, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, I win. Because mm. I, I visualised beating everyone else. Mm. So it just seemed a hand down that uh, he's out, I win. And um, mm. it's the way it panned out. Yeah, I got
0: mm. there. And I think... You travelled three wide yourself, didn't you, most of the way? But you always had cover.
1: Yeah, I was back going to the first turn. I got out well, but I was sort of midfield and there was a hell of a scrimmage and I could see it unfolding. So I sort of just got off. I was nearly on the fence I got away from the fence for about three off the fence. And there was scrimmage everywhere, but I actually missed all the scrimmage and all of a sudden found myself three wide. And I thought, well, I've missed the trouble, so uh, I'm still cruising. And, um, yeah, coming out of the bend, four or five wide, but sort of travelled up pretty easy. And I think I only hit him twice down the street. He only got there by neck, but Mm. I just always thought I I had it won from the time I drove out my driveway.
0: Mm -hmm. A very exciting day, Mark, for all concerned, for Frank Cleary, who was beside himself after the race, as were his family. Uh, That was my – I was downstairs then. I'd finished race calling, and I was uh, actually doing – pre- and post-race interviews for Sky and I can remember uh, trying to find somebody from the Cleary camp with my microphone uh, in the aftermath of the slipper and they were all crying, all having a good blubber.
1: Yeah, it was probably my biggest thrill in racing winning that race for, for Frank and Sue and Ben and Joe, uh, the effort they'd put in and because I'd ridden the horse four times previously and gone down and ridden in track work at Queen began in the lead up, it was such a big ordeal to get there and Frank had been robbed of a slipper years earlier with Plano Sullivan. Um, I'd run second in a slipper years earlier. Um, so it just seemed an ironic twist that uh, we'd both run second in slipper and we got ourselves together and um, had our day in the sun. But, yeah, know, that was probably my biggest buzz in racing.
0: Mm. Your wife, Carol, has been tremendously supportive over the years, Mark. She... You'd come home and say, we're going to Hong Kong or we're going to Mauritius or Malaysia or Singapore. She'd say, righto, let's go. We'll pack the bags.
1: Yep. Well, she was obviously uh, the slipper day. Ironically, I bought a sports shop when I'd come home from one of my trips overseas, and a sports shop in the QVB, and mm. Carol was actually serving a customer at the minute the golden slipper was on. Mm. And... She was serving a customer with her eye on the TV. We had a TV in the shop, and the customer kept saying, oh, have you had a bet in this? She went, oh, no, that's just my husband there. He just won that race there. And he looked up at the TV and said, that's the gold slip. And she said, yes, that'll be $48.50 and on your way. Oh, <laughs> she didn't even get to see it properly. So, um, but yeah, no, she'd been very supportive, obviously,
0: yeah. um, working the day I was riding. So she was in the Queen Victoria building in that little sports shop. I remember coming in there one day with a television camera. She was yep. a good worker, Mark. Yep,
1: that was it. Yep, and she yeah, had her eyes for the TV screen and she calmly said to the guy, oh, you know, I am having had a bet, but that's my husband just rode that winner, so that's good. You and still... picked
0: up, that's a gone slipper. <laughs> <laughs> You're still playing yeah. off a three handicap? No, I've
1: blown out a little bit now, so... Um, but still getting all right. I've got a few foot injuries and yeah. finger injuries. and But, no, getting around all
0: right. So yeah. enjoying it. Mate, you are 60, don't forget.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I keep forgetting that but <laughs> I remember it when I try and run.
0: <laughs> well, you chose to become a jockey instead of a rugby league halfback or uh, opening batsman for Australia, and you made a very good fist of it. Had you not chosen that path, Mark, uh, I wonder what sport you would have pursued. Yeah, you
1: know, I yeah you know, might not have excelled at anything in particular, so I don't know where I would have been, Johnny. But uh, I've enjoyed what I've done, and I'm still enjoying what I'm doing.
0: Thanks for your time on the podcast, mate. Long overdue. Great to catch up. Thanks, Debbie. Mark de Montfort, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. Podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Evers.